Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the debate, How Can We Create a Construction Revolution?, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival on Sunday, the 3rd of November 2019. Our partners for the debate were the Chartered Institute of Building. The debate is introduced by the Chair, Austin Williams. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Um, so this is How Can We Create a Construction Revolution? Right. Um, Yesterday, it's very interesting that uh, yesterday Corbyn, not that it's a partisan point, it just happens to be in the news, but Corbyn announced that the Warm Homes for All initiative as part of the general election campaign is going to start. 450,000 new jobs apparently in double glazing and loft insulation are going to be created as part of the new Labour environmental policy. Boris bans fracking, Corbyn uh, insulates lofts. Uh, but that idea that, you know, that loft insulation is the is the mainstay in some ways of the refurbishment of the construction industry is, is quite interesting. So we want to take a look at the idea that in some ways for many hundreds, you could say many thousands of years, the construction industry has been about putting one brick on top of another brick uh, and whether there's a need, a desire, an opportunity, a potential to actually challenge that and maybe do something differently whether there's opportunities for prefabrication, 3D, robotics or whatever it might be. Or you know, whether that industry is so staid and so uh, instrumental to the way the economy works. One and a half million people working in the construction industry, about 600,000 of them are, are bricklayers and plasterers. How you would get on by to change the construction industry if we ever wanted to maybe go into prefabricated uh, mode. Anyway, things to consider. So we've got a, a great panel, as it happens, um, who will give, a, a, I think, a variety of, of takes on this. Um, to offer a provocation, a short provocation for four minutes or so, five minutes or so uh, outwards. I have some questions which I may or may not ask, depending on how I feel at the time, uh, but hopefully you will have questions to bombard them and, and take them to task, but also contributions, yes? Yeah? So it's not just a Q&A. It's uh, using your uh, experience and knowledge as well. So first to speak will be, I'll go through them all, first to speak will be on my far left, Simon Rawlinson, who heads up the multidisciplinary strategic research and insight team for design consultancy Arcadis. He's a member of the Construction Leadership Council, responsible for strategy, communication, and thought leadership, which is known as the Dominic Cummings syndrome. <laughs> he, thinks, he thinks he's a leader as well. Uh, a little joke there. Um, Simon uh, is a member of the Construction Industry Council Executive, and his research interests include market forecasting and construction productivity, which I think is a very interesting take, hopefully, on this. Uh, Lisa will be second. Uh, Lisa Finlay joined Heatherwick Studio in 2011 and is responsible for some of the office's most iconic projects, uh, London Coal Drops Yard in King's Cross and 1,000 Trees in Shanghai. I've uh, just written a short piece for wallpaper. Take a look, great article, uh, but a great building, as it happens. Um, and she's also group leader responsible for a portfolio of, of leading projects from concept development all the way through to delivery. Third up will be Dr. Theo Dunas, senior lecturer at Scott Sutherland School of Architecture of the Built Environment at Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen. Uh, you should see the size of their of their name board on the university. Scott Southern School of Architecture and the Building Environment at Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen. He's currently developing research projects around uh, BIM uh, and blockchain and robotics and his architectural practice, Adventurous Architecture, works on complex buildings in Greece, China and Scotland. 
And finally, last but not least, we have Neil Thompson, Director of Digital Construction at Atkins, representing CIOB here today, who is sponsoring this session. Thank you very much for them. Uh, Neil is focused on developing robotics capability. He's a member of the Centre of Digital Built Britain's Digital Framework Group, uh, and a member. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and a member of the Infrastructure Clients Group Future Leader Group instrumental in the progression of Project 13, which is like, sounds like a really shady American nuclear experiment, but it's uh, actually a campaign to develop the next generation of leaders uh, in the construction industry. So again, a nice take on where we should be and where we could be going. So this session is kind of about the future by the definition of the title, Construction Futures. Some ways, I think, we don't necessarily want to have completely bonkers ideas, you know, we should build floating houses in the clouds or something, um, but I think we do want to kind of stretch our imagination about what we, what we could be designing. There's a guy uh, who died two years ago called uh, John M. Johansson, uh, a kind of a, a techie, hippie architect uh, from the 60s who developed the nano-architecture, which is self-growing organic architecture. Very interesting, bonkers, but interesting. And he said, I'm mindful that the molecular house and the self-growing house may not be realized for some years, and that my architectural concepts are somewhat precocious. Yet it would be well for our society to be prepared with intelligent and serviceable architectural proposals when the assembler breakthrough occurs. Yes? So in some ways, this is a, hopefully a precursor to something that may... Uh, be willed into the future. So that's my annoying and slightly laboured introduction. Um, we'll start by having all four speakers, and then we'll come out to yourself. So Simon, if you would, please. Okay. Well, it's great to be here. Um, I'm not going to talk about a construction revolution. I'm going to talk about a reconstruction revolution. And what a reconstruction revolution means is you build as little as possible, and it, you repurpose everything that exists. So it's a vision of a circular economy for our sector rather than lots of new ideas about making more stuff that we actually as a planet can't afford to build. Now, if one thinks about that carbon agenda, it all sounds a little bit sort of distant perhaps, but we now know it's the law. And indeed, within 30 years, of course, we will be in a net zero economy. Now, this youthful person in front of you, started in the industry 30 years ago. And the industry that I'm part of now is pretty identical to the industry that I joined 30 years ago. Okay, we've got a bit of BIM, we've got slightly more prefabrication. What we have is far more ambitious and far more carbon-intensive buildings. And I think that the agenda is moving so fast that actually as an industry, as individual organizations within that, we're finding it really difficult to respond. And you could argue that the kind of innovation agenda that we have at the moment is cover for the real innovation that we need. So when we talk about productivity, increasing output per person, maybe we should be talking about productivity in terms of increasing outcomes per kilogram of carbon saved. Now, Let's have a think about this industry that I want to create a revolution in. So our products are some of the most carbon-intensive things that are made on this planet. So a third of the carbon emissions in this country come from heating buildings. Ironically, it takes about 10 years of carbon to build those buildings in the first place. So simply the act of making things makes things worse. 
Now, in terms of our practice, of course, we're again, we're hooked on making things. My practice, we're paid fees in relation to the value of things that we construct. Now, that's a little bit of a strange incentive, isn't it? We're encouraged to build more, so how are we going to wean ourselves off building more? And then if you think about what we do and how we do things, we're also encouraged to recycle and knock things down rather than reuse them. So if we looked at the Broadgate, again, Broadgate was built about 20 years ago, and already we're demolishing it and starting again. That doesn't feel quite right. So how do we fix this? With all of these things, it's always a matter of carrot and stick. It's about tax and incentives. Carbon at the moment costs about 25 euros a tonne. That's no incentive, is it? Now, what if it costs so much that you couldn't afford to build, that you had to do something different? That would change things, wouldn't it? Now, what would happen if you were incentivised to lock in the carbon that already exists? So actually, existing buildings, rather than liabil being liabilities, they became assets. And plans to build new things became liabilities because they caused too much carbon. Now, the kind of behaviours that that kind of switch might create would be that we'd build much less, and what we would want to do is we'd want to deliver those outcomes, education, movement, in different ways. Might be doing it virtually, don't know. We'd want to reuse everything. So every single building that we won't need because we can't buy anything anymore, we can't go anywhere, we'll be working from home, we'll be doing other things, you'll have to reuse for something else. Maybe it's for people to live in, maybe it's for people to care things in, maybe it's to deconstruct things, I don't know. And then what we need to do is we need to make sure that we use every kilogram of carbon that's invested in construction in the most beneficial way. And I'm pretty sure that that won't be in the UK, that will be somewhere in India or it'll be somewhere in Asia where it will deliver a better outcome. So, what's revolutionary? Firstly, we're really going to have to innovate, and I like the idea of self-growing buildings. Buildings that actually use organic materials, not just plants, not just wood, to deliver those outcomes. I want incentives to make people to have to do things, because doing nothing, not building, because it's too expensive, isn't enough. And of course, we need it to be inspirational, because we're an industry at the moment that is about to get effectively um, sort of um, you know, what you could describe as have a real problem with the reputation around Grenfell, for example, and we need a reputation around solving our planet's problems. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Round of applause. Very good. That was a great kick-off. I disagree with lots of it. <laughs> uh, Lisa. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Simon. So... Um, I suppose uh, where I'm coming from, I am coming from a point of making things, and I think there is a lot of innovation taking place already. I think part of the re revolution is already here, but it's between designers and it's between fabricators, because designers inherently are dreamers, and they want to constantly make better things, more beautiful things, and fabricators, they want to perfectly craft the thing that they're making. So we already have, in the work that we do, um, great dialogue between fabricators, and we're using some of the really interesting technologies like robotic fabrication, like augmented reality, but not just for how things look, but augmented reality for how we can build things. And I think that ties into Simon's point where you can use augmented reality for how you reuse materials as well. Um, so there is already this great dialogue that's happening between 
um, designers and fabricators, but the people that are getting left out are the main contractors, the people that assemble it. And for every, um, you know, all the talk of automation and for robotics, all those things still have to come to a site and be assembled somehow. And that's where the reality of things going wrong will always happen. Um, and some of our experience using um, really high-precision fabrication, 3D modelling, everything integrated, it doesn't matter that that's taken place, it still comes to site and things still go wrong. So I think somehow I would love to see some kind of um, w reducing the chasm between architects, designers and fabricators and... Um, and contractors. And for me, that would be things like trying to pair every architectural school with a construction academy. And I also think there's kind of three tiers of innovation. So you've got the kind of real sort of super sci-fi, far, far off visioning. Um, and then you've got the sort of mid, midway that seems almost achievable. And that's things like super factories building um, houses with ro uh, robots uh, in the near future, which is actually going to happen very soon. We've already got that, um, a UK developer planning to do that. And, and for me, that kind of thing is, is incredibly exciting because you can then put making things back in the centre of uh, communities and you can, ha you can have housing around that. But I'm actually quite interested in the really small-scale innovations, the innovations that happen every day when you build things. So we have conversations with fabricators of PV panels, for example, where a designer is saying, can we just change the shape of that so that can be... Um, instead of being, can only be used on roof, it can be used on curved surfaces, which then opens up a huge, uh, a, a much wider range of applications for that. And we've, we've been doing that on some of our projects. And it's really small scale kind of uh, conversations like that on a, on a real basis that I think make a huge difference. So I'm, I'm up for a sort of micro revolution. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Go for it. <laughs> it's terrible when you have to force people to clap, isn't it? It's just not. You don't, you don't have to clap. So um, okay, that, was, that was really interesting. Um, well, I, uh, for the two days I'm in London, I stayed in a hotel that consists of a system of uh, prefabricated pods that get stacked one on top of the other. Uh, they are selling the experience by declaring it a, an affordable luxury. All of the rooms are the same. They're all pods, um, uh, a little bit small. Uh, my wife didn't like the kind of smallness of, of the room, um, so I don't know about the affordable. I don't know about the luxury, but it, it was certainly affordable. Uh, I was able to check in and check out digitally. Uh, in, I didn't have to interact with the person to go into the hotel or out of the hotel. And I was able to control the rooms uh, using an iPad, right? So the lights, the window, the, how the TV worked, and so on and so forth. And... Uh, that got me interested in thinking uh, how could they be able to do that, right? So I, I checked the company, and essentially it's a, it's a company with an integrated business plan, but also integrated operations. They run their own design team, they have their own uh, marketing team, and the marketing team speaks very, uh, very closely with the people who actually design and build the hotels. So I would say kind of an uh, um, example of, of what Lisa was describing about integration is, is, is a building like that. Uh, we are now having new technologies that will help us create um, the, the new dreams for the next 100 years. We're already at the level where robotics and automation actually is, is implementing the technologies, the, the dreams that we had 100 years ago, right? So we are now at the level where we can realize what modernism was about. Uh, but I think we need to, to skip the Industrial Revolution, right? We, we need to forget about uh, replicating what other industries did. 
uh, and just jump straight into the fourth industrial revolution. And that means that we will need to integrate a lot more with the digital world or even with a, a biologically um, created one. And for me, uh, I am kind of envisioning digitally and automatically created artifacts that, that exist in an ecosystem, essentially. But how do we do that, right? So the two things we need to change is culture and thinking. And we need a change in culture in thinking more systemically, and we need a change in, uh, uh, in thinking in a much more risk-taking approach. Uh, from that point of view, we will need to become a little bit more experimental. We need to um, uh, implement automation on a, on a high level, but at the same time, create thinking and producing machines that will do the work for us. We are talking about robots creating buildings, but at the same, at the, at the moment, if you look at the uh, uh, micro-revolutions, as you were discussing, uh, these are very simple uh, things that we can accomplish at the moment, right? So we need to actually bring in the robots and the automation on a much more complex, much more meaningful way into the design and production. Um, and for me, it's not about just saving labor, but also about creating a better product, uh, where you have a higher quality, you have industrial quality, but at the same time, you're able to mass customize that, that building element or that building, right? So where everything is of industrial quality, but it's still a prototype. Um, in terms of the thinking, right? So we need, to, we need to change, of course, architectural education. For me, we need to abandon um, curricula that have served us for uh, a very long time, and we need to kind of bring the architect back closer to a proto-architecture where the, the, the thinking of the architect uh, gets implemented immediately in, in, a, in a direct connection with fabrication, right? And, and at the moment, digital technologies allow us to do this. So we need to stop, uh, stop discussing beautiful drawings or beautiful models and, and go back to discussing uh, beautiful buildings. Oh, very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Theo. Theo, finish yourself, thanks. So everyone's taken all the good points, so I get to use the excuse of uh, what, what they just said. But no, um, th there's three things I wanted to cover that kind of support some of the things that have been said already. So um, one of the things is about empowering the consumer in the built environment, yourselves and the rest of us. Um, another part is um, a concept that I like called using buildings as material banks. We'll cover that one in a moment. And then the last one is about the systems of systems thinking. And I think these things can tie together quite nicely. So first, talking about this empowering of the consumer. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's perception of the interfaces with construction, but has anybody tried to get local labour to do some decorating for them, build an extension? Anyone? Was that a positive experience? So there's... <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the average conception, uh, perception of uh, construction is, that is quite negative. So, and that is, you know, the, the majority of the people, we talk about the labour force, is those people at the, the coalface, the skilled labour. And I think an interesting dynamic to think about is, there's a thing called collaborative robotics, relatively straightforward robotic arms, and uh, they're going to reach a consumer price quite quickly. Um, you can buy one today, I think the cheapest is about $15,000, and in about two to three years' time, there'll be manufacturers that'll be selling them for the two to $3,000. And I think um, if I was to say to you five years ago that you would be able to buy an autonomous lawnmower for B&Q, you would have laughed at me. But if you, go, if you haven't been to B&Q, you can buy an autonomous lawnmower from there. Right now, today, it costs about 
100 to 1,000 pounds, depending on how big your garden is. Um, now, what happens when you place those collaborative robots in the hands of skilled labor? when we can move the screwdriver to the power drill, to the power drill, to the collaborative arm. I think that's going to have a profound impact on how we have that digital discussion with skilled labor, because it's been lacking. Um, next is about uh, buildings and material banks. So what if we can create a commercial value of these materials on a futures market? So I can buy corn and other materials in the future, they're very complex um, financial mechanisms, but essentially I can purchase stuff in the future. What if I can purchase the concrete that this building's made from in the future? Because there may be technology that can repurpose that, so it has an intrinsic value. And the other side of that is about incentives. So um, you know, how can we create a commercial environment that allows us to incentivize people to build things with the best materials or the most sustainable? And I think that this concept of using buildings as material banks is an interesting one because I think it's an important um, part of this circular economy. Um, and then the last one um, is about the systems of systems. So all these things are intricately connected. We all came here on transport, either by foot and all the way through by plane, maybe. Um, and, you know... How are we going to calculate the impact of building these things on this system of systems is a huge problem, and nobody knows how to do that. You know, who, who is going to own the system of the system? You know, at this moment in time, essentially, the ultimate owner is the government. Is that appropriate? And, you know, and then I guess the other question is, who, who, who governs the systems of systems? But how do we wrap the incentives of not just a house and its land and its repurposing, it's much broader than that. Powering the consumer and having control over the system of systems that the built environment participates in. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> very good. Uh, so look, can I ask a couple, couple of questions? Do you mind? Um, so look, Simon, I mean, I liked a lot of it, don't get me wrong. Um, but... You, I mean, you redefine productivity for your own purposes, mm. uh, but productivity does mean doing more with less labour, mm. doesn't it? Uh, which kind of follows on from kind of what yeah. you were saying. Um, so that's saving labour, um, whereas your model seemed to be actually expanding labour or, or, or using labour more gratuitously or, or willfully. There's actually, a, it's an interesting question. I didn't get that far, actually, um, because, uh, uh, I mean... One could hypothesise um, that in a few years' time um, it might be harder to make things because their carbon tax is so high. They actually you need to provide jobs for people to do things. And you know, one could go back to an economy which is more around those circular economy values where actually in terms of employing people to do these things which deliver outcomes that are measured differently. So I think that idea of a societal benefit, but it's not at a carbon cost, could be quite interesting. This, of course, is all about provoking a debate. Um, in terms of whether it's possible, I don't know. But in terms of those kind of thought experiments that encourage us to think away from how we would normally think about productivity, which is fewer people making more stuff, to something around delivering better outcomes societally and from a point of environmental perspective is another way of looking at the same equation. 
Well, that kind of sounds like a good old-fashioned Chinese job creation scheme, doesn't it? I mean, Emery, Emery Lovins, you know, the, the yep. environmentalist, he wrote Factor 4, uh, he wrote several books. Um, he did this one example where he, he says, I'm driving through the southern states of America, and he sees a chain gang, and they, they're sitting there breaking rocks, right, like they mm -hmm. did. And uh, he said he, he, he couldn't believe how remarkably efficient they were. They were sitting there with their legs curled up, and every time they broke a rock, they... None of the chippings flew away. They saved everything. And what a wonderful, productive model. This is what he actually mm -hmm. says, right? An environmental model where massive amount of labor power to create very little product, but none of it's wasted. And that's, I'm, I'm, I'm parodying what you're saying, but I'm just wondering whether there's an element of that, that labor then becomes slightly more worthless than the use of the resource in the first place. So it almost like it doesn't matter how many people it takes to build a table, yep. as long as it's kind of environmentally sustainable. Uh I mean, I mean, if because this is if one thinks about where we are at the moment, and and actually the point you make is is quite a good one because if if one if one looks at the, most of the historic infrastructure we've got, let's say for example our rail network was constructed out of bricks primarily because the unit cost of a human being laying bricks in the Victorian era was close to zero, mm -hmm. and as a result you were able to build that infrastructure. We're having this mad debate about HS2 because now, of course, labour is so expensive, it becomes prohibitively difficult to build any kind of infrastructure. So if you then start to take the next bit, which is saying, right, OK, well, what kind of model battling against that idea of human labour being so expensive would enable us to do something as complicated as decarbonising the UK economy? Um, that gets mind-bogglingly difficult. And perhaps that's where robotics needs to come in, because if you can't afford to do it, partly because the tax is so high, but also because the people are so expensive, you are stuck. And actually, that, 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 that will mean that the reconstructing revolution won't happen either. True, true. Discuss. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't go on. Um, good. So that's that one, one angle. Um, Lisa, I'm trying to go through you all like, like I'm some princeling here, but uh, <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you made a comment which I think probably architects have said for donkey's years, isn't it, that things still go wrong, so you can have the most efficient production, prefabrication, etc., 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 take it to site, and it doesn't, still doesn't fit. Yeah. The, the, the question is, why? Why can't we have a... You know when Egan started talking about you know, front-ending the design process, why can't we front-end it so far that we actually do a decent site survey? I think... I guess it's the, it's the sort of human factor. There's always going to be human involved in it. And I think sometimes we, think, we talk about these technologies as if so suddenly everything will work if we use them. But they're being deployed now, and we can already start um, evolving them and enhancing them. Because, uh, you know, I I've been involved in projects where, um, you know, everything, everything has been modelled correctly, but the modelling was based on a wrong model, that's all I can say, and, and because of that, things didn't fit. And also things like, you know, using um, point cloud scans to survey existing buildings to reuse, um, but the, the actual model itself becomes so, so much data, so heavy, that people um, actually had to physically move this terabyte round from office to office, and, you know, it's, it's ridiculous in a way. And, and that, that uh, information has to be simplified, and, um, and within that becomes tolerance issues. So I think, um, I think the sooner we can talk about the realities of adopting these technologies, the better. So things like um, it, even just talking about material, uh, material banks and um, 
material mapping and resourcing and using um, existing materials. It's an absolutely brilliant idea. Um, we've tried pitching it to clients, and it's a very difficult thing to digest. Because if you're saying to somebody, we would love to uh, design your building, but we'd like to design it out of materials that we don't quite know what we've got yet, and we can't tell you how it's going to look. And, and the way the material mapping works is it's often based around the local area. So say you have you want to build a building in a certain area, you would then look at all the construction sites, all the demolition waste, buildings coming down, off-sites, and see what you can use. And, and it's, it's a really difficult ask for a client to, to take that because it's, it's a big risk. Um, so it, it's kind of asking for um, you know, institutions like universities or councils to build buildings with that method so that people can understand what it means. Um, but it's, it's a big leap of faith, in a way. And the sooner we do it, the better. But it's... It's great to talk about, but it's, it's such a leap of faith that more people need to take it, um, but with the understanding that things will still go wrong, because they will, because there's always a human dimension. Um, but I think that's where the more, uh, the more we talk about it, the more it's part of the education, um, the better. So you know, I would love to see these super factories in the middle of communities with construction academies, architectural schools, all together looking at what, what does go wrong, why, why can we... Why does it happen? How can we fix it? How can we design that into the design process? Because that's ultimately what we do now as designers working with fabricators. We, we understand what goes wrong in the making process and how we can allow for that and just minimise what goes wrong because it will always, always go wrong. Fine. <laughs> Should we be making mega factories? I, I, I guess the question being is that our mindset still seems to be in this Victorian linear production model and... Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I know once we can get elements of construction into a warehouse, it will start off quite mandrolic, so you know, labour-intensive, and then we can go through processes to innovate and introduce robotics. But should we, how many generations are we going to write off putting into big factories of people in, in going through that process? Is there a better way? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to go with a large factory. Right, you kind of you kind of describe the, the the idea that you might have your own robot, right? So the the kind of model that might work a lot better is uh, one of a of a hacker culture. It's it's the same group who is designing is also the same group who is um, building the components and then assembling them, right? So f from that point of view, you don't have to go to the level where you will have huge factories assembling uh, prefabricated objects. But at the same time, the, the problem exists. It's, I completely agree with Lisa that it's a, it's a human factor, right? We were, we, we've done projects where we were designing a, a totally no metal fixing timber panel, and our biggest problem was the joiner that would install it, right? So we had to think of what a person who would behave in a stupid manner would actually do with a product that was high, high level. And it's very difficult to actually work out, work in a different kind of manner from that point of view. Yeah, okay, well, let me just quickly, it's a useful question, I'm going to come back to you on in a minute. But on Theo, in terms of your high tech, obviously this is beginning to sound like some weird, wonderful dream that we could all have about the future, what it might be like, rather than what maybe it is like. But the construction industry is one of the least digitized sectors in, in the country, yes? Apparently, IT spend is, is less than 1% yeah, of, of, of revenue. So are you just imagining some gratuitous future yeah. and, and ignoring the reality? Well... It... In a sense, it's either it's either that or um, it's it it is the death of the industry, right? So it's either they will have to the construction industry will have to uh, digitize in a radical manner, right? Uh, or they will be superseded by others who will exactly eat their lunch, essentially. 
right? <laughs> education is actually under the same kind of problem, right? Education and so I'm, I'm, I'm in two of the industries that have this kind of this kind of issue. And you see, for example, what has happened is you get online micro degrees, or you get you get people offering uh, the product that originally was the the era of uh, universities, right? So you might get people who actually design software programs, for example, you know, programming a robot that can build a building, and then you're done. So either we have to actually digitize and find creative ways to, to implement all of the, of the futures that my co-panelists are, are describing, from putting, for example, um, components of existing buildings on a, on a blockchain so that that can be traded off, or finding ways to actually implement and map um, uh, components of a building, because Very right good. now these processes don't exist. Very good. There's a problem well. in that the, the construction industry is almost the exact opposite of the tech industry. So if you think about something like WeWork that magics billions of value out of very little. Does it? Our industry. Does it? Though? No, of course it doesn't. That's why I use the word magic. Our industry does the opposite. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. sorry about that. Uh, let's talk about WeWork, which sort of magics billions of value out of bricks and mortar. Our industry loses millions of money out of bricks and mortar. And I don't think necessarily the application of technology is ever going to change that, because I think Lisa's point around people make mistakes, huge amounts of mistakes that cumulatively just lose value, waste, material, everything else, is at the heart of what we do. Well, and how you work out why that is and change it, rather than hoping at a a tech sort of startup model might change, no, no, no. I don't know. Actually, but, but, Theo, but, 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 if I one minute, let me, let me ask... Neil it question. is really important. I know. Well, it's obviously important, isn't it? But hang fire a second. Let me just quickly ask Neil a question, which are on the same okay. parameters, right? Because here you have Theo talking about this kind of construction revolution. I just accused him of magicking it into, out of thin air, <laughs> yes, what we should and could be doing. Whereas you were doing, you know, the title is a construction revolution. You were kind of seem to be talking about an organic slow growth that actually bricklayers and plasterers would suddenly have a, their own personal robotic arm that yep. would do all the painting for them rather than themselves. So this kind of, it didn't seem like a revolution to me. It just seemed like some kind of slow process to change. I suppose the first question is, why the rush? <laughs> the second question is, what's wrong with people being expensive? Is, is, is an interesting thing. So not, not I want to give a lecture on industrial history, but an interesting point was the... Uh, the creation of the spinning jenny, so in weaving of clothes. Um, the England industrialised much faster than France purely because of labour rates were nearly twice as much as they were. So the commercial incentives around mechanisation, the spinning jenny, um, I think it was about a year's worth of labour was the cost of a spinning jenny, and it was about 100 days in France. And if you, I mean, I'm not going to go through it. If you're interested in it, go and check it out. But I think, if anything, it's the this... I think it's more of we're in a space of being paid a fair amount for what we're doing in that space. If it's efficient or not, don't I, I, it, it doesn't matter that much because I think if you encapsulate the future value of what is delivered, the value it delivers is it just outstrips it completely. I mean, if we think about our underground system, and you think about um, how much value has been has been generated from that, the amount that those people have been paid to create that is 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 nothing. In, in comparison, so I think it's, um, as you say, we work have managed to magic value, and it, uh, and that's probably a, it's a debate is a debate for another time of the intrinsic value of tech, tech companies on the stock exchange. But 
I, I think there's an element of, you know, we talk about outcomes and trying to, if, if, if I was paid on the future outcomes that I enable in Atkins, I'd actually probably be a quite a wealthy person. Okay, let me... I don't know if that was his question, but yeah. it's a point to make. Well, it was interesting, <laughs> wasn't it? It was interesting. Uh, so, whenever, if anybody so got... A, I, I know, I know, we're going to go in for a minute. We can have a quick... Any, if you want to have a go at somebody, because I know Theo wants to come back on you, Simon. If anybody want to have a quick comeback, and then we'll go out to the audience. Well, I was just about to say that the, the reason why WeWork was successful is that they, they failed on their first three attempts of... Okay. Is it, is it okay here? Okay. Well, yeah, it is about to go bust because they paid a really huge amount of, of money to, the, to its founder, right? But uh, I wanna, what I'm trying to say is that they were not really successful on their first three uh, projects uh, until they changed architects and the new architect that came in used laser scanning to be really efficient in surveying the existing buildings and used BIM to essentially create a digital twin of everything that we worked owned. Uh, and after that, after the first project, we worked, turned around and bought the architecture office. So said it's, it's much more easier to buy you out, take you in and incorporate you, integrate you into my processes, right? Uh, and then they essentially recreated the same kind of uh, process in every country they went, right? So in China, for example, they bought the architecture uh, practice that would, that would initially uh, design their buildings. And this happened in a, in a really close, tight integration of technology, business model, uh, and forward thinking. Good, right. Any final points where we are at at the moment? Yeah. Happy, happy, happy? Okay, out to you. Uh, we'll take the gentleman there at the back with his arm outstretched. Keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Yep. And then we'll, and then we'll go to the guy in, just in front. My yeah. question's to do, to, do with, to do with commissioning. So, you know, Corbyn's vision is to do with loft insulation and so on, but there's, there, there appears to be an appetite. All of the political parties are outbidding themselves for what their, you know, what their strategy might be. And so my question is, what kind of commissioning uh, would be really good to drive some of the um, some of the innovation strategies that you that you see, and uh, and and kind of link to that specifically. So clearly, there's a, you know, like mo it seems to me, most of the development that happens is commissioned by you know uh, corporate investments globally and so on. You know, in a situation in which the state, um, you know, it has the possibility at least to intervene more directly and to be a bit more national. Uh, about about its strategy, what would be good in these circumstances? Okay, hold that thought. I'll get one more question from the gentleman in front. Yep. Um, I was wondering if you might consider not having a revolution, if you might consider that in fact you're not doing a tremendously good job. And I'll give you a quick examples. I live in an eco flat in Battersea, so it's partly between the architects and partly between the legislators. But it was, it's made of wood. It's got a wooden frame because it was low CO2. It's shipped in from Austria. Of course, that now makes it a fire risk. We've got a combined heat and power system, which should give you savings on fuel because it makes hot water and electricity. But the service charge, there's two service charges, on building up a fund to replace it eventually outweighs massively any savings on electricity. Um, it's they're single aspect flats, and there's no chimney. So they get very hot in the summer. So they install a mechanical air extractor, which his main achievement is sucking in particulates from the outside. So, and the filter that protects, there is a filter, but it protects the machine and not my lungs. So the flat is full of dust. 
Um, and all it's doing is pulling out the, the stale hot air, which chimneys do without being connected to the um, electricity system. Um, and having I've, built, I've been in two new build flats where they, one of them they miscalculated the, uh, the heating system. So as the temperature went down outside, the temperature on the radiators went down um, because the pipes were uninsulated and going through concrete uh, voids, blah, blah, blah. So what I'm saying is we haven't really... Uh, and we're sitting in the building, and as an example, we haven't really got um, mass-produced housing right now using the, con using the uh, technology we have. And isn't it a bigger issue, I would have thought, for construction and architecture, is replacing what's been built since the war. I've, I've got a great interest in the Ledbury Estate, which is a, uh, what I call a sail panel, but precast walls, which is splitting apart because the wind loadings were done incorrectly for a lot of these flats. And I've just seen the Arab report on what they have to do to keep Ledbury up for another 50 years. It is utterly extraordinary. You've got steel beams running down 13 floors and everybody's flat gets smaller. Um, and I, my question is, why are we talking about robotic arms painting walls when really we've got a lot of problems with re replacing what's being built, which is wrong, and getting right what's being built now? Okay. I have to be careful of answering that question, for you might be cited in the, in the, in the legal case. Uh, can we just I take one more question, and then you can come back on any of these issues raised. Yes, so the gentleman at the far back, uh, with a coat on, yep, thank you. Uh, th thank you. Thanks. This is more of an observation than a question. Um, I was sitting in this room for the previous session on uh, how can we get an industrial, a fourth industrial revolution. And... I'm just kind of staggered by the gap between these two sessions. So the previous session was all about, you know, how do we build new nuclear power plants, an Apollo project to decarbonize the economy, and um, supersonic engines, and all this stuff. And I just think, and the vision on this panel is incredibly small-scale, prosaic. Um, Simon, I think you said at one point, we can't, you know, once we build all, this, all these structures to hem us in, we can't go anywhere and we can't do anything. Um, where's the ambition for something a bit more adventurous to support the next um, generation of, of human development in this country? It just, it just, I was expecting something a bit more exciting. Right. I'm sorry, but... Okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, sure. So, look, so I, I mean, look, the, the gauntlet is thrown down. Mm. The fact that he's also wearing a coat in this building is a symbol of... Uh, Miserable, miserable yeah. state of environmentalism. But also the similar thing here. Partly the flip side, the way you presented it, sir, was do we need a construction revolution? And then the guy at the back saying, you know, yes and more. So we have, you know, a huge kind of... Uh, I have to live in the flat, or the block of flats that you've built... And yeah, it wasn't me, mate. Well, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I, get, I get the point. I get so, the point. so you understand my point, is that oh, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the end... It's the people who live in the flats or work in the buildings that's important. What interests me, because in I'm in the car industry, I was right. here earlier talking about that, is that the car industry is utterly, utterly centred on the customer. If they don't sell 450,000 Golfs a year, they're out of business. Yeah. And they have to sell that to 450,000 different people. What strikes me as the problem with architecture is you only have to get it through the client and the planners, and that's, that's, the hurdles are massively smaller. And that's why I, th I think you're not really, 
you're not facing the consumer, because if you want to come around to mine, I'll talk <laughs> you through it. <laughs> God, that'd be a hell of an evening. Well, we, we accept right. no liability uh, for, your, for your design, because we didn't design it. So. All right, look, so we're actually going to answer the questions now. Yes, sorry, I, I interrupted. We'll take you later, Seth, that's all right. So, <laughs> no, anything, that, anything you want to address, yes? I mean, there, there has been some challenges thrown down, but carry on, carry on. Sorry to talk in a stretched analogy, but so I, I used to be a building services engineer, and what you described is a reason why I just I couldn't stomach it because the that particular profession is in trouble because essentially the environmental disaster that the built environment comes from that profession. And I don't think they're doing an awful lot to do about it. Um, that's out there now. <laughs> um, but so the analogy is um, so. We're trying to have a conversation about essentially having, you know, this, to, to tie it to the music industry for a moment, we're trying to have this conversation about a platform technology like Spotify. The problem is, is to be able to sell music digitally, you've got to work out how to record it digitally. And that was done back in 1979-ish. Now, an interesting thing, and I'll try and keep this really brief, is there's an interesting thing that happened from a music quality perspective up until 1979. To be able to record something up until that point, you needed your musicians to be of a high enough quality because you're recording on tape. Recording on tape was very expensive, so you had to make sure that the, the, the quality of people to participate in that system were very high, and then you had to get it right first time because you got it on tape, went out, and it had to be put onto discs, etc. Now, what happened with producing music electronically meant that you can cheat. You can, the inputs and the, mus the musicality required to produce music essentially hit the floor. I mean, you can have your own opinions of what the music was like in the 80s, but um, uh, essentially the, the musicianship has, has dropped. And we've, we've reached an interesting place with the music industry where um, the whole industry is dying because it can't sell stacks of crap albums anymore with one decent song on, where it's now selling quality. Gig tickets are really expensive because it's about the experience and its connectivity one-to-one -one with the consumer. And I think you are, industry, you are cleverly bringing this back into the consortium. So, to come back, so I don't think our industry has worked out how to record music digitally yet. It's still not worked out how to record design digitally yet. We, we can't have the platform conversation that they have in Industry 4.0 because we're 20 years behind and we're still in that mindset. Sorry. Uh, I, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I have... Uh, pretty, I'm going to say I agree with the guy at the back, actually, uh, in terms of I wasn't in the session, uh, but the idea that this needs to be a session that really talks about a big picture rather than a small picture. I thought I'd painted a big picture, but perhaps I hadn't. But the idea that if we're talking about small things like robotic arms, we're missing the big point, which is I would um, rhetorically say that we can't continue to build unless we can completely decarbonise it. Now, that feels to me like a trip to the moon kind of challenge because we're in one of these industries at the moment is utterly addicted to carbon. So if we can't get excited about that, and we can't see that as a challenge, then I do think we've got a problem. And, and I think that is slightly more than working how, how to do it digitally. It's a, it's a bigger, bigger thing, hence the tax and the incentives and everything else. Okay, I won't say anything. Uh, you guys, uh, you can take that one, because I think that's fundamentally important. But there's other questions on the Well, I'll start with the, with the discussion of the gentleman about, about design, right? So you have in your hands, and again, I accept no liability, so don't take this as, as a professional advice, I have to say that. Uh, you have in your hands a very bad design, right? It's very simple. 
And the reason why you have your, in your hands a very bad design is because people who tr get trained to, to design buildings don't get trained to work together and work for the user, right? Mm -hmm. They get trained to work towards not accepting liability, right? And trying to essentially escape uh, the problems. Another big problem that, that starts to, 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 um, to emerge now is that uh, you have people who are essentially get, get trained to talk about words such as sustainability, for example, without actually understanding what that means, right? That is maybe the, the, the pipes and the, and the filter and the, uh, the, the heat pump that doesn't work, right? I have students who tell me uh, that their building is going to be a zero carbon building and they don't understand how utterly difficult that is, right? And they write whole reports without once mentioning thermal comfort and the user. And, and, and when I come back to them saying, you utterly failed because you were correct technically, right? But the sole purpose of what you're doing is to actually serve, serve that purpose is completely gone. So at some point we need to get back to understand what, what this, uh, I wouldn't call it a business, but what this discipline is about, right? And it, it is about the user. If we forget that, Robots, blockchains, uh, circular economy, any other kind of, of invention, right, uh, just gets thrown to the dogs. And I guess, another, uh, I guess another point on your issue is just how buildings are commissioned. You know, the best buildings that, uh, and design processes we've been involved in is when the, the person commissioning it is the end user because they have the ultimate vested interest in how it's built, how long it's going to last, how it's going to be dismantled, what it's going to be like to maintain it. And that is really quite rare to get that. Um, and so many buildings, the way they're commissioned, um, the end user is so, um, you know, so far removed from who commissioned it. And I think somehow there has to be much more accountability between who ends up occupying the building and who commissioned it. Um, and, and I think there is, uh, you know, there is great construction out there that happens, but it's, it's when there's like direct dialogue between the commissioner and, and the architect. But when it gets removed, it's, it's so easy for these um, decisions to be made to simplify things or to just meet regulations, not exceed them, whatever it is. And, and the accumulation of that can, be, uh, can have a really big impact. go back to the building. So there's, there are uh, single-aspect flats built in Manchester where people are saying that it's 27 degrees inside during the summer, which is pretty good going in Manchester. Would, you, would the architects ever go back to those buildings when they're two, three years old, people are living in them, and, and actually experience you know, the, the, the problems of what you're being commissioned to do? I mean, what, yeah, what, yeah. So the, what I'm saying is, is that uh, your robotic arm is, is fantastic, but your your decarbonised concrete might only be possible if they make hydrogen from wind power and use it to f use it to make the concrete, or use it for the heat or whatever it is you need. Um, what I'm saying is, is, a lot of this is out of the architect's hands. Yeah. Right. If you want to decarbonise yeah, it, can I make one suggestion? First of all, for God's sake, don't give him that microphone again. Uh, move away. Uh, second thing to say is that, I mean, in answer to the question at the back of the room, uh, I was. Uh, very worried that uh, the session would f be exactly the same as the previous session. So in a funny way, I'm delighted. But I also uh, agree with you that I do think that the big ideas 
you know, the revolution that you said, why do we need a revolution? Um, and I'm a great believer in, you know, maybe having some great, more imaginative demands on productivity, increasing the, mm. uh, um, you know, because it's a very labor intensive in some ways. And, you know, we can say it's very high wages in some respects, but low wages in other respects, uh, industry. And I think we do need to think bigger thoughts. And in some ways, we, we had a conversation this afternoon about the Bauhaus, you know, back in the 1920s when they were talking about prefabrication. Uh, and, it, and it's never happened. And yet, when we have conversations today about prefabrication, it's about building information modeling, it's about 3D printing, it's about the technology of making it happen rather than the social demands in order to allow it to happen. So I think you know, we have to kind of recognize that uh, there's something restricting our imagination here, which I want to try to unpick a little bit. I think we're, we're getting there. In some ways, carbon emissions, you know, in, if we had a vision for building more, or better, or bigger, or whatever it might be, right? Then you can have a conversation about how maybe you could reduce the carbon emissions in, involved in doing that. If we have a conversation which starts with let's reduce carbon emissions, then very often you then end up not having the bigger conversation about how can we achieve how can we achieve what? Right? Why would we achieve it? You know, what's so it's it's a, it seems to be a bit of an ass around tit. It's a uh, way of looking at it. Right, that was my little go. Just to aggravate you, I know him. Uh, we'll take this gentleman here, if that's all right. That gentleman, and then, uh, yes, you, sir, yeah. Hi, I, um, I missed the session. Sorry, I did walk in a bit late. Um, we noticed. The, there's so many different points being made here, but there are systems out there that work well when done properly with the right coordination between designer and builder, and people are trained properly, and soft landings, they go after, they've handed over the building, and there's a period of three or three years where people maintain to tune the building so they know it works or doesn't, or if there's a floor in there, they can change it. So often the contract contracts, it seems to me, are that people do this and that's the end of their responsibility. Hand over the keys, here's the manual, goodbye. That's it. I mean, that is a big, big problem for lots of buildings and the whole construction industry. It's very siloed. You know that half the time you get a plumber in to do a bit of work, he walks in, he does his work, he doesn't take a look around what else is going on, whether there might be actually something else hasn't happened and if he does his thing it's going to have to be undone, he's just paid to do his bit and he does it and he leaves. And that happens all the time too. And Passive House. Passive House has been going for 25 years, it's a German system, and we know Brits hate imitating German systems, it's a sort of fundamental DNA thing in here, even if it works really well. It's lots of people are starting to adopt it here. It's just won the Sterling Prize if it's done properly. And I know they go wrong too. Actually, passive house buildings do not get... Generally go wrong when people build in backups and say, oh, it can't possibly you know, work this way. We'll put in a backup <coughs> heating system. Oh, dear, all the flats are now overheating. And everyone complains and says, passive house is rubbish. Don't believe what you hear. And this is the problem. And things get out into the news, and it's written up, and Passive Houses takes three steps backwards. Timber frame buildings. A few, a few buildings burn. Lots of brick build buildings burn too, actually, but we're still building in brick. So it's so much is about the hysteria about headlines. And to me, I really wish people would tell the truth and not believe the headlines. And that's my comment. OK. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Where was the... Yeah, you, sir, and then this guy in the front. In the very so he's got the mic and then this guy in the front. Thanks. Yeah. Um, 
it's been quite interesting listening up there because there's two schools of thought, but it's not really coming across clear because your gentleman is about complex problems, dealing with futures, dealing with the buildings that we got of yesterday and keeping them for tomorrow. And obviously we talk about new buildings from the architectural point of view of um, uh, robotics in delivering through that area. And, and I think that we don't want a re revolution, we want an evolution, and an evolution that's quite coherent to anybody out in the system to understand. And what I'm trying to get at is that I can't even see the simple cal uh, uh, collaboration that we need across all industries, across the construction and designer and the manufacturer in coming together. You talked about mistakes we made all the time. That's a natural part. And unfortunately, someone's got to pick that up. And you talk about the innovation. It's about how do we develop that innovation, how do we fund it, and how do we take responsibility for it? For this poor gentleman here, dealing with some innovation that's something done 20 years ago. And that's about, about coming together as an understanding institution, not only on the complex for past, but future. Talk about project briefs. I want to build in the last 40 years. What does that mean? I'll be charging the hell out of them. I'm going, if you're going to pull a, a job down in 40 years, then, then you're going to pay for it. Something's going to last 200 years, then, then you've got something that's worth something. You know, and it's about paying back to society. Let's look back at 100 years. I mean, let's look at the awards that we gave 100 years ago that what survived today and take the lessons from them and not tomorrow. So final question to the panel is, how can we take it to an evolution, not a revolution, in a stage process? Like the car industry. They deliver cars. They don't make profit on cars. They make profit on service. That's the difference. All right. We won't go into the car industry just but I, I, I do think you've hit on Hang a on, point. Hang on, God, blimey, there's a system. But that, well, you say something and then you say something. I didn't realise before uh, this gentleman spoke. My, my point on this is maybe this session should, about, should actually be about destruction rather than construction. Um, I've come to that thought, cause, uh, Simon, at the end, you mentioned about uh, Broadgate, you know, been up for 20 years, I think it was, and being knocked down. To a certain extent, I've got, not got a problem with that. Um, but more for the UK as a whole, I have got a problem with, the, the, I mean, I've lived in places like, P, well, I work in Peter, I've lived in Coventry, lived in lots of other places. The housing stock in these places is absolutely appalling. I'm sure people actually do their best to, to, to live there, and it's not just about house, it's about community as well. But I do see a certain element of, I would quite like some level of industrialised destruction to actually allow... Any, any of these great new opportunities, possibilities to come in, to come up with new ways of um, coming up with housing. Because a lot, I, I understand a lot of it is architecture on the sort of grander scale and innovation will come in from the, the one-off constructions. But ultimately, construction is about people as a whole. Uh, I think we would have a different conversation with the same people if we were talking about, say, Africa or China. Um, insofar as there'd be more possibilities to be more ambitious with the technologies that's been spoken about. The circular economy wouldn't come into it because it would have even started. Um, so yeah, so my, I guess my point is I see construction should be about renewal, not just a circular economy of reusing whatever's been done before. Thank you very much. Uh, can I take one more, do you mind? <coughs> Gentlemen in the... In the Wonderful Daz White shirt. I think what the session has illustrated for me, especially contrasting with the last one, is how out of touch the architectural elite is with normal people. 
And uh, I wonder whether we've heard of this, something like this before in British, British politics. You know, people who are well-paid, professional MPs being out of touch with actually what eco-homes are like to live in. Now, it's great to hear that old Blairite uh, word, Simon, outcomes. I love that, outcomes. It's great to hear that building workers, other people in England, are highly paid. It's lovely to hear from you, Neil. What's the hurry with a revolution? I mean, after all, we don't have a housing crisis in this country, do we? There's nobody who's poorly housed or anything like that. And then we have our old friend, the circular economy, as backed by Brussels. It's the only innovation that Brussels is interested in. Did you know that we used to have a take, make, dispose model of resources, right? And now we need to make it circular. Take, make, dispose of. It's linear, it's selfish. But some, some of us in the room, the economy is not driven by that resource extraction and depletion. It's actually to do with something vertical, to do with class society, to do with architects being out of touch with poor people. We also heard that we're addicted to carbon. Uh, that's a lovely metaphor which George Bush uh, coined. Now, I'm more sympathetic to what the left on the panel has said, uh, and I just want to enter a note of realism for the lovely Thomas Heatherwick studio about robots. Right now, Britain has 71 robots per every 10,000 workers. That's way behind Slovenia, Slovakia, and various, the Czech Republic, and various high-tech regions of the, uh, of the world that we know about. So I'm afraid that until we have a revolutionary attitude to robots and to investment and construction, we are going to go on living in damp, cramped, low quality, poorly insulated, wet uh, homes. Just finally, the revolution that we really need is with what the OECD calls the most regulated, bureaucratically regulated land use policies in the 33 countries of the OECD. You are not allowed to build where you would like to build. And that is because of the Town and Country Planning Act, 1947-8, and because of the way in which the state bears down on poor people and renters and the homeless in this country. So I want to hear fewer cliches in your summing up, please. So, uh, um, from the architectural establishment. I want to get a sense of urgency for solving homelessness and for fixing the problems in this country. Very good. Right. Uh, that's another gauntlet of some description. So uh, you don't have to like, you know, focus directly on the last comments that have been made. There have been other ones. Can I just see if there's any other comments out there you want to kind of throw back? I know that there's some uh, uh, Taiwanese, not Chinese, uh, architects in the audience who so may want to comment on the Chinese Revolution, or the Taiwanese Revolution. But uh, till that point, uh, we'll, we'll come to you in a second. The gentleman at the very back, yes. Yeah, it's respectful about WeWork and the innovation that maybe is embodied in some of it, but I just meant the overall kind of business model of releasing old buildings is actually kind of bankrupt already. And I think what you're going to see is that WeWork will, will go bankrupt. I think there's talk about it being taken over by the bank that funded it within the next couple of months, basically. So the actual overall business model is a bit defunct or whatever. Um, I want to say something on power and power generation. I wanted to ask if anyone in the room has heard of something called the Magrav Power Generator. Has anyone heard of the Magrav Power Generator? Mag Mag 
magnetic and gravitational powers invented by an Iranian nuclear scientist called Kesha and it has massive implications, revolutionary implications for both domestic power consumption and production and also industrial uh, power uh, consumption and production if it's scaled up. It's basically a simple model that you basically have a carbonized copper wire uh, wound um, clockwise and a carbon uh, copper wire wound anti-clockwise, which allows you to extract power from magnetic and gravitational source from the atmosphere in a very, very simple way. He approached all the world's governments, tried to get them to basically take it on board, tried to get them to implement his technology. They completely ignored him, so he's now dumped all the plans open source on the web. So you can look it up on, if you type in MyGrav into uh, Google or the KeshaFoundation.org, um, which shows you a range of different possibilities that is produced from it. Um, but I wanted to say something basically that if you look at the car industry, for example, Tesla produces uh, solar panels for your, your roof, your battery pack for your garage wall, and then powers your car. So you've got a massive kind of infrastructural implication and production going into producing those kind of elements of that power supply to the car. But he's actually found now a way of innovating so that you can actually put a MyGrav generator inside the car, making all that infrastructure completely redundant. So no one's aware of it, no one in this room's even heard of it, but it's about to basically break into the, into the, kind of the world and break onto the world's kind of stage in the, in the sense that we can create completely clean power in a really, really accessible, quick way. You could basically produce uh, power from an empty Coke bottle Okay, um, thank you very much. So we got it. We, we're all going to buy shares tomorrow, right? Uh, Magrab is here first. Non for profit. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody makes some money out of it. The gentleman, can you bring the microphone on this side, and then we'll take the, that gentleman last. Um, um, it's a very inspiring conversation for me, actually, uh, because I I originally from Taiwan, and I used to be work in Taiwan and China and here, and I feel that the construction industry actually uh, is a very uh, a high barrier from country to country. But when you talk about, when we talk about prefabrication or off-site construction, uh, I always think about how to distribute all those um, manufacturers to around the world, not only import basic elements like stone or marble from different countries. I'm thinking how can we distribute, because the main question over here is, we talk about that, it's too expensive to build and the VAT is too high, um, we mentioned about this a, a lot, but if we can say like um, biometric uh, prefabrication, for example, we, if we can make the manufacture that somewhere, it's cheaper and it is assembled here, uh, it maybe can increase the uh, whole um, productivity? I don't know where can I use this term. But actually, uh, I can feel that in terms of a building regulation uh, for say, Material assembly, we need a lot of different sign, uh, signatures, say electricity signature, everything for, uh, for to build a whole building. So for me, I think uh, how to change the whole building regula regulation or the whole system in order to achieve this kind of, uh, say, op more of site construction to distribute the change whole supply chain of the whole construction industries. Mm, maybe more, how to say, uh, beneficial, <laughs> beneficial to or create a, a future of construction industry. 
That's my personal opinion. Very good, very good. It's good to have somebody from Taiwan saying how bureaucratic the British <laughs> construction industry is. Uh, on the question of the potential role of the state, so to come back to that, I mean, you know, at the end of at the end of World War Two, just think of utility clothing and the idea that you get together a group of designers who would kind of come up with some high quality specialist designs that get rolled out all the way across the country. I see a photograph of my mum, she looks really stylish, but then she looks like everyone else. You know, what about the idea of uh, of, of pattern book developments of you know, large-scale housing solutions uh, that can both be reconstruction and new build uh, that could be rolled out across the country um, that could indeed bring together all of the disciplines so you have that kind of you know, joined-up um, kind of uh, strategies that you're talking about. But to do that at real scale, you know, in relation to the, to the scale of the problem at the moment. So it's kind of, you know, I'm asking that as a straw man because I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about, you know, whether, you know, this kind of, what would essentially be a top-down, centrally driven solution is appropriate or, is, or, or does there need to be something else? It's the kind of other end of, uh, you know, James Woodhausen around here says, well, why don't you kind of, you know, deregulate the planning system you think about you know that kind of thing combined with a different kind of centralised intervention, you know, then that seems to me to be speaking to the question of ambition. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're going to feed back. This is our kind of final flourish, yeah. uh, addressing the points or ignoring the points as you see fit. Mm -hmm. uh, but just go for it. You've probably got a minute and a bit to go. Yeah. Oh, no. just a minute. Well, um, <laughs> or two. Yeah. Well, I, I might do a short one and come back later. But it's, it's the difference between us and any other industrial discipline that makes stuff is our relationship with the land, and that's what makes everything really difficult. So to go back to some of the questions about um, some of the bureaucracy we have to go through, I think it's something like 75 years that it took Crossrail to get through the planning system. Um, so I just want to park on that one. Is we have a relationship with the land that's perverse. It's and no country has ever come up with a decent system that helps with dealing with that. I'd, sorry that I don't have the answer, but I'm not necessarily sure that a centralised control of that is... There's not enough human beings that can work on dealing with that if it's centralised, for example. OK, look, so we are but, rounding yeah. up, Simon. So, okay. Okay. so uh, take Simon, you have another bite of the cherry, Lisa, and then Theo. So, um, so I think we still do face a problem that we are going to struggle to build things in the future. Uh, but just picking up the copy book uh, point that you made, it's a very good one. Actually, Department for Education, Department for Health is looking at this. So it's something that government is doing. Uh, but I have share your concern that it won't be dealt with at sufficient scale, which is the point that James was making. So I think it's change at scale, whether it's doing things or not doing things, not building, repurposing, is what we need to do. There's a couple more out there. Have another go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, no, the big ideas. I mean, the guy at the very back, he said it a while ago about the Industrial Revolution versus Constructive Revolution. There's a gentleman who reinforced that by saying evolution, which was your point. Okay. Well, I'll take James's point about outcomes because I think that's a good one. Uh, which is that if we take an outcome like improving the home's quality for everybody, and then you balance that with the other outcome, which is that if the planet's not going to fry, uh, then we can't do that with emitting any carbon. 
then that means that we really need to change the way we're going to do things. And some of that might be innovation in new materials, new ways of working. Some of it might be in terms of let's make better use of what we've already got. Because the idea that we would throw away a piece of concrete which was made, say, 50 years ago at enormous expense to the planet just because it wasn't quite right at the moment seems to be really stupid. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm going to give another shirt. Take the mic. Uh, I'll come back. <laughs> I've, I've got something, but... Such a prima donna. Uh, Lisa. Um, so I guess I just want to pick up again on that point of uh, building at mass scale and the ambition of that. So I think, there's, uh, I think that's in the very near future. We are having these um, super factories on the horizon, but the biggest issue for me is customization because we've had mass prefabrication before and it's been on a completely decontextualized basis. Um, you, know, you have the same looking buildings that you have anywhere in the country and it's devoid of any relationship with this context. And I think if it's one thing we've learned from that whole swathe of construction is that um, buildings don't survive when they have a lack of uh, meaning in their context. So that's why I'm interested in how things can be built at scale, at, you know, with prefabrication, but having some more of a connection with where it's being built. And, you know, we, we make parallels with the car industry. It's such a, a controlled environment. You know, it's one product all under one roof with all the feeder, um, feeder components within the same, uh, you know, within the same envelope. And it, it is really difficult to do that with housing because there's so many uh, more components. It's such a collaborative process. But I think the more we can get under one roof, the better. Um, and uh, I think there's, there's you know, one aspect we haven't actually talked about, which is more about the siloization of design and how you know, everybody has their individual responsibilities. And it's so marginalized that there, there has to be a big coming together. But one of the things that is a big issue in this is planning. And so, you know, if we are going to have uh, a kind of mass, uh, mass construction period of uh, new-built housing, um, you know, we have to have a, a real sort of bolstering of our planning um, service as well. We've had um, experience of uh, planning schemes where planners are trying to articulate the fact that they want brick, but what they're saying is we don't like prefab. And it's a really odd, uh, you know, a really odd way of communicating what they want and what they don't want because inherently they don't have an issue with prefab, but they think they do, and there's a sort of stigma with it. So I think there's a whole sort of piece on how we can actually, um, I guess, uh, bring a wave of optimism and ambition about what this new wave is, so it isn't perceived like a sort of a rerun of what we've done last time. It has to be different. Okay, bring you in. Oh, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, James is point where he's, he's saying, you were saying evolution and he's saying have you not noticed that we haven't got the time because we have a housing shortage that housing quality as this gentleman said is terrible in this country sorry uh, and, but, and therefore you know so you're being a bit kind of lazy or lavish about saying that we don't need to speed up well it's not it's not that I think it's where the focus is so um, it's so I'm going to go back to my empowering the consumer point so if technology is cheap uh, and it's becoming cheaper and I think it's about there's a lot of unhappy people in the in the consumer of our what we deliver and if we can place technology in the hands of them the revolution will become from them essentially being empowered to disrupt us so I'm not saying about we need to worry about it because I don't think we deploy our resources appropriately but if we can shift the relationship with technology if we look what's happened with banking how many startups have come from people that aren't from uh, from financial backgrounds have built new banks 
know, I want to create a platform for consumers to be able to build better technology for construction because at the end of the day, it is disconnected from um, the people that use it. And the only way that we can get around that problem is by placing that power into their hands to, to shift us. Okay, thank you very much. Theo, do you want to finish it off? Well, I get the difficult part. Um, well, the, there, is a, there is a contradiction, right? So on one sense, we, we want highly customized, context-sensitive, full of meaning uh, uh, buildings uh, prefabricated in a highly efficient factory that looks like uh, it was made by a Volkswagen. Uh, sorry, um, what's the appropriate Vauxhall to use the appropriate Britain, British company, and not offend anyone. Uh, I think at the moment, this is what I was trying to say at the beginning, is that we, we do have the technology to actually produce essentially what architecture does, which is prototypes, right? We don't do, we don't do 500,000 uh, uh, products of the same kind. We always do prototypes, and the whole discipline is geared from the beginning, from year one when you enter architecture until you, you do your first building, to produce prototypes. And that is an issue. That is a problem, right? So that's, that, that is what has to change in, in the first instance. The second thing that has to change is that um, we need to understand... Uh, the point about mass customization, about working together with other people, uh, with other disciplines, and bringing closer the, the, the cycle of design, fabrication, and then evaluation, of post-occupancy evaluation, as we call it, uh, to, and, and learn from those cycles. Right now, as, as the gentleman had, had said, uh, a lot of times the architect or the, the constructor doesn't come back to actually see you know, whether that uh, thing worked. There are models of, um, of uh, generic or, let's say, typical housing that, that could be, uh, at the moment, be spread all over the country. It, it, is, it takes political will to do so. So we don't, it's not, we're not missing the creative capacity to come up with, say, uh, a system of 100 types, right? The, the, this country actually has the creative capacity to, to design those things. It is a political um, need and will to actually fund a, a campaign of, of such uh, scale. Um, I think in the end, we need to uh, kind of go back to actually addressing needs, not just of the industry, but actually of the end user, right? And housing is one of those. This is how I got involved in robotics in trying to essentially create uh, pods that would be easy to install in, in Scotland, where some of, the, some of the regulatory issues are a little bit more relaxed than, than uh, say, England, for example. And I will close there. Thank you very much. That's the end of it. Give the panel a round of applause if you would, please. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast.